everybody, welcome to True House Stories. I'm Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And I'm talking to one of my other New York City compadres, one of our first generation remixers, DJs and producers, as, as I know. And when I was coming up, you saw this man's name on every gosh remix. It used to be John Morales this and John Morales that. And in fact, some of my older friends used to say to me, they used to go when David Morales became famous and John kind of, you know, he had his his time in the eighties into the nineties. And when David was doing house mixes, my friends would always say to me, Oh, John mixed that. And I said, no, 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 it's David. David. That's yeah. David, David Morales, which I'm every friends. Time I, every time I see and talk to David, it's like, everybody thinks I'm him and people right. like him, you know, are we brothers? Are we related? I'm going to ask that question in a second. So wait, hang on. So I used to get that all the time. Oh, John did that mix. No, 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 no. I have to correct people. That's David's mix. So if it was a, you know, this record would be John's record that he mixed. But the Morales name is one of those names that is sensational in dance music. And John also was a master mixer on WBLS. We used to listen to his shows back in the day, you know, when, when DJing was not just what it is today, but more of a art in the sense of you had to understand how to really mix records with vinyl, you know, and these guys were in the studio and John's going to take us on a trip down that road and his experiences. This is so much to say. I mean, he's remixed countless thousands of great artists. And, you know, I remember yeah. hearing his name with Sergio Munzabai. May he rest in peace. And John will tell you about Sergio as well. Um, and, and how many, lives john touched along the way in our business which is amazing in itself you know because one thing about john morales you'll all learn everyone if you want the damn truth don't ask john morales because he'll tell you the gosh damn truth <laughs> you may not like what he's going to say to you but he's going to tell you the truth i am so, a little bit opinionated to say the least we like but to you know walk but, hang on, you know, like, but, oh, wait, hang on. We'd like to welcome John Morales to True House Stories. Because <laughs> I know John's ready. He's out the gate. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Thank you, John. I don't get, I don't get I, we, you know, it's funny, but, you know, it's like, you know, we've known each other for, you know, for a number of years. And we always get into these, like, deep conversations about the music and the things that happen and the players and the the lovers and the haters and, you know, the things that go on. So um, it, it's good to, for us to have this conversation and share it. We can maybe take some questions from some people. That oh, they will be. They'll be oh, don't worry. They'll be banging and like knock at my door going, I'll say to you, John, hang on. A question came in. But Everybody knows that watches this show knows the first damn question I always come out with, you know, young John Morales, mom and dad, when you're living with your parents, okay, young, grade school, John, yeah. I'm older, you know, because I, I have those pictures with you and Sylvester and, and your long trench coat. We got that. But we're no, talking. That was way before. We're talking. Yeah, we're talking 10 I'm talking years old. Kid, like good living in, you know, up in the Bronx. Where does music or how do you find music? You know, what's what's your an, an AM radio with a little uh headphone, a mono headphone. I think the radio might have been like the size of a cigarette box. 
you know, that I, I don't even know where I got it, but, you know, I grew up in the Bronx in the boogie down in the projects. And, um, the thing was that both my parents, Puerto Rican, they worked hard. You know, my mom had like two jobs. And, uh, the thing was that I had a little AM radio and I used to go to my room and I used to stick it underneath the pillow. And I used to put the little headphones in my ear and I listened to like the early 60s stuff, you know, Gary Puckett, the Union, and uh, uh, what else with the Bee Gees. And I mean, some of those early 60s are grouped the Buckinghams, Sam and Dave, the Four Tops, Greens, the Tents. You know, that was like my introduction. And then in my household, my parents listened to salsa music. You know, so that's where I got all the the rhythm and got into the whole drumming and percussion thing. So music music found me at like nine, ten years old. Wow. So you let me ask this, was Murray the K on in those days? Was that was that his era? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Murray the K, Wolfman Jack. Uh Don Kirshner was also more like 70s, but the 60s, I mean, I didn't know a lot of the personalities. I mean, it wasn't even FM, it was just AM, so... Now, we always call that almost music. <laughs> almost. Hey, but yeah. listen, you know, that's the stuff, you know, they used to put me to sleep at night. <clears throat> I get in my bed with the headphone on, you know, my mother would come up in the morning, wake me up. You know, my biggest problem was being able to afford batteries because I'd leave it on all night. That's what I was going to say. It must have been, like, done within a yeah, day. Yeah, so that, that was it. There was no rechargeables, you know. You couldn't go and just plug it in somewhere. You know, so I'd take half my lunch money to go get a little AA battery to put in the radio, you know. Jesus. You know, basic, like, we laugh about basic stuff like that. Back then, that was huge to have a little AM transistor radio with with batteries that worked you know especially right. and you're not you know you're a young kid so i can just say ma you know give me two dollars you know they're working hard they're working yeah, i mean hard. you're talking yeah we're, we're talking geez i when i think back we're talking like 1965 you know yeah so you know it's 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 a while you know people don't realize and, and um you know i realize it more every day now how fast time flies you know when you start thinking of stuff that you've done, like the other day I put a post up with Caught Up in One Night Love Affair, I realized I did that 41 years ago. I mean, not five years ago, not three, not 10, not 15, 41, you know? So, you know, it goes to show you how fast time flies. That's why, like, I always tell people, it's like, I like, dude, you can't look to tomorrow, you know? You got to look to today, you know? Because tomorrow, you already passed tomorrow. If you're living today, you already passed tomorrow, you know? Well, that's the key. You know, you got to think, you know, you got to be able to live for today and also try to plan a bit, you know, into the into the yonder. But it's hard these days with COVID going on to plan anything. Well, no, but that's I, all mean, I mean, just in, just in general, I mean, the whole thing, especially people that are trying to get into this music, I mean, most people or at least in my era, got into into the music for the music part of it, not because we were going to be famous or yeah, there we was no make such a lot of money. Famous. There was no such thing yet about being no, famous. Dude, that's why, like, it's so rare. Like, 
the, the biggest request I ever get is for old photos. Do you get any old pictures? Right. You know, in the studio or in the club. I'm like, dude, we couldn't afford a freaking camera. You know, we're, we're talking 60s, 70s. Right. You know? So, and then one of my bad, one of my worst experiences was that one time I was in the studio with an artist and I wanted to take a photo. They said no. <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, you know what? This sucks. I'm not going to worry about it. So, as you know, back in the day, when you went into the studio, you went into, into work. It wasn't we're hanging out, we're taking pictures, you know, and stuff like that because the studio time. You know, some studios charge two fifty an hour, you know, and you're in from ten to six, you know, unless you've got a super big budget, you know, as none of us did because we were doing dance music, you know, you know, we were lucky we could get a studio to work in. You know, they, they just wasn't the, you know, the money available to do it. So whenever you got in, it was just we gotta get something done. We gotta cut a track. Yeah. Do a vocal, but- read notes. But we get to that. That's 1970s. Let's get a little bit. Let's let's take the, let's go back a little bit because people who don't know John, we want them to really know John. You know, did you play any instruments, John, along the way? Yeah, I played quite a few. I mean, <clears throat> funny enough, my first the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to be a rock guitarist. You know, one of my favorite guitarists was a. Uh, jazz blues guitarist Johnny Winner. You know? So when I was in my teens, that was the first instrument that I really got into was the was the guitar. And I was decent, but I wasn't good enough. You know, then I went into percussion. I played a little bit of keyboard. So it's like I dabbled in everything. I always used to say I could play, but I'm not good enough to play on any of my own records. You know, so I just used to hire, you know, people out when we got to doing productions to play on our records, you know, because, you know, there was a lot of times when me and Sergio didn't have the budget to play musicians. You know, we used to, like, one of our key musicians was Bashiri Johnson, percussion. You know, we used to use Bash or Jimmy Malin on a lot of different records. Now, I could play, but I didn't have the skill set that they had. Sure. You know, so, you know, as a producer, somebody's making records, you know, that's where you have to check your ego at the door and know, yeah, I can play a little bit, but the record's going to suffer because I'm not good enough to play what I hear in my head. Right. So it's easier to tell somebody, play this or play that. You know, can you can you play a, a seven or can you do a run here or there? Mm-hmm. You know, something that you just don't have the dexterity to do. You know, so you were so basically the the thought of you being a rock star went at that end. That ended pretty quickly. <laughs> that ended. I don't la- I I laugh. It, I'm not laughing at you. I just the way you said. It, pretty no, quick. it ended in the seventies. You know, because I just, you know, it was like when I was in high school. You know, I, me and the guys that lived across the street had a rock band. Actually, me, I'll post a photo up of uh, of the band. I don't. I have them like kind of hidden away. And we played at a high school, right? Okay. We played at, uh, what was it? Oh, Castle, was it Castle Hill? I forget the name of the school. We played at the high school. You know, I was like really proud. I had got my Marshall Lamp. You know, I had a flying V. You know, we were like, you know, 
the teenagers in the school, everybody came to the gig, right? And we're playing, right? And everybody's like pointing at me, you know, going like this, you know? And I'm like, why? What's going on? Right. I, I look around, my amp caught fire. Oh, no. And they had the tube, the tube were burning. So <laughs> we oh, had to turn no. everything off. And it was, it was crazy. It was crazy, you know? And I, I thought we were doing good. What did, we weren't doing, we weren't doing good. We were just, you know, you know, fire, fire, fire. So basically you were really on fire. We were and on fire. Far, and not fire in the sense that you turned the place out. But yeah, you, but you know what, what ended up happening was, uh, because, it, you know, all that gear was expensive back in the day. So I ended up, I went to, uh, to Manny's. I think it was Manny's on 48th Street, Manhattan. And I bought a used Marshall 100 head stack. And at the time, Marshall was in Westbury. They were part of Korg. Yes, I remember that. Yes. Right. So I took my amp. I took the amp out there because it needed to be. I took it out, had them put in new tubes and just kind of, you know, fix it up and make it right. And they made it wrong. Evidently, I came later to find out that they wired one of the tubes, a couple of the wires wrong. And because I was just had it cranked on 10 all the time, you know, it just created too much heat and it just burnt up. And it was like, you know, in the gym, fire. And that was. Did Marshall uh, cover you for that? Did they pay you for that? No, nah, they don't pay for anything, you know, because the thing is, you know, which is like, um, I had a friend, it's like, you know, it's like you take a, a, your car to the garage to get serviced and you drive out and 10 minutes down the road, oh, here you hear this fucking knocking, you know, <laughs> you, you hear something knocking, you're like, wait a minute. So you drive back to the place and the guy says, he says, we were, we fixed it. That must have just happened. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like, that's, no, that's something else. That ain't that ain't what this we didn't, that had nothing to do with what we fixed. Right. So who's who ever put your hands up in the air? Who's had that issue? Left their car out of the garage, maybe drove 10 miles down the road, and all of a sudden they start hearing a clicking or a banging sound. <laughs> I, I just had that happen to somebody in my family. They just got their car serviced, and like a day later, it started making like some banging noises. Went right back, and they had some major work done on the car. And the guy was like, not me. Nothing I did. You know, unfortunately, <laughs> shit happens, you know. So, and like, so, recall, so the recalls that we used to get when our mixes doesn't apply to the car mechanic, right? No, no. recall. Well, see, you know, those recalls, that, that's a whole nother story. I don't even want to go there. I'm just, I'm just joking. Those about re it. A recall is not a recall. No, no matter how you can recall something, it will never come back exactly right. Okay. You know? True. Because the biggest, the biggest problem with a recall is not the gear. It's you. You know? And your perception of what you're hearing at that time. You know, because you come back the next day, you know, you're listening to something. And it used to happen to us every once in a while. We go to the office and we play something back and say, well, you know, the label says, you know, they think the, the bass is too loud or the kick's too loud or something. So go back in the studio, take two hours tomorrow, 
and just tweak it and bring it back. You know, now the next day you go back in the studio, you know, the engineer or the assistant recalls the whole mix. And then you sit down and it sounds totally different than what you remember. You know, because the, you know, there's a lot of people don't realize there's things like ear fatigue and stuff like that, which changes how your ears listen to different frequencies. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in the studio 15 hours, you know, you don't hear the same as you heard when you started as when you're finishing. Right. You know, we used to do six to six. We go in at six o'clock at night and be out at six or eight in the morning before their 10 a.m. You know, big sessions would start at the studio. Was there a reason for that that you did the nighttime? Yeah, because people don't bother you at night. You don't have people calling. You don't have people that want to come by the studio. You know, like the label. Oh well, uh, you know, the A and R guy is going to come by and hang out for a little bit. I was like, nah. We start at six. <laughs> yeah, like, get, oh, right. Yeah, let the engineer get things set up. And just, you know, we used to tell the studio, we wanted to talk, just says no calls, no visitors, you know, and we would just, we would just work, you know, because we found that when we did day sessions, you run into all kinds of problems, not even just in your room, but in the studio, you know, used to, you know, we used to work in studios that had multiple rooms. So you had people walking in and out, you know, like we'd be in one room, you know, Bruce Forrest would be another, you know, you know, Mark Kamen's would be in Studio A, you know, or something. And, you know, you'd want to go and hang out, see what Mark is doing, and he'd come down. Next thing you know, your session's almost over and you haven't done anything. Right, because you're talking. I know. Because you're bullshitting. You know, that was the thing. There was a Space Invaders and a Pac-Man machine on the seventh floor. Big so problem. You get out the elevator, bang, <laughs> right in front of Studio B. We were in, we were sitting there, Lenny. I'm telling you, we were stacks of quarters, like rolls, ten dollars worth of quarters. Playing, playing all night, and no. then we'd be in and out the room. You know, so <clears throat> it was it was a different different world then, but it was. But it was good and it was exciting. So let, let me let you drive this car because I'll just run off on different. I'm going to let you run off the cliff for a minute, but I got to pull you back off the cliff, everybody. Yeah. So let's go right back to where this. <laughs> I'm back on the train track. So here we are. You're a young guy. You burnt the place down with your Marshall lamp. What comes after this? You stay with the band or the band thing ends and then you start to find dance music? Where is this all going? No, we started, um, we, we still with the band, but then in 1960, 1970, I went into the Air Force. So I spent a couple years uh, in the Air Force. In Colorado, I did a very short tour in Vietnam. Um and I did, I was a radio DJ for Air Force Radio. So I was kind of the... Uh, I didn't know that, bro. I didn't, know uh, I didn't know about the Air Force Radio thing. Yeah, yeah, it's in a lot of my docus. No, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I did, uh, 
Good morning, Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you play Bob. I, I did part? a small stick thing. I had like a little hour thing, like once a week, just you know, playing music. I mean, it was basically music that they had there. So it wasn't like you could play your own stuff, you know. So you'd have a stack of records, and a couple guys would come in and and play when they had a chance. So, but then I got hurt, and I came back stateside, and um. So now this is at 71? Right. 70, 71, 70 okay. to 72. Okay. So now give us what New York was like when you came home and what was going on all around you. Because, you know, you're coming back from, where were you in? Are you just Colorado or you went to Nam? No, I went. I went to Colorado. Then I went to Nam. Colorado, Nam. Back to Colorado. Wow. And then I came home. In 72. Okay. So 72. Now take us down what New York looks like in right. 72. Now I'm still living in the Bronx, but now my parents have bought a house. And the guys across the street that I had the rock band with, their father owned a salsa record label. Right? Called uh, Mary Lou Records. They had one of the first ever 12-inch records by Jimmy Sabater. Wow. To be in love. Was it not to be in love? Uh, was it to be in love? It was one of the first 12 inches ever. You know? 12 inch or an album? Okay. Just a 12 inch singer. 72? Yeah. I'm sure it was 72 or 74. One of those years. Oh, what was it? Matter of fact, you know what? My memory is bad, so... I'm going to look real quick. Verify this for everybody. Could you believe this? If he's going to tell us that's the first 12 inch ever. No. Well, <laughs> well, you know, the whole story with Tom and everything. To be with that, you, right. It was uh, to be with you. What year? Don't you love this? Everyone, you can check Google. Google has become our librarian. Unbelievable. 1975. Okay, that's why I figured it had to be at 75. Right. So those few years, we still, when I came back, we still had the rock band. And I was starting to do some DJing at local bars. Oh, you were DJing already? Yeah. Let me, let me just throw in there that at that time, my father had a bar. And I used to fill the jukebox. So that's how I got into the 45s. Okay. Was that when they would come and change the records in the 45, they would leave us with the records. Oh, really? They used to leave it? Yeah. They used to leave the 45s. They put in the new ones and you keep the record, you know. I, I mean, there was only 100. I think, was it 100 records in the machine? I don't know. It wasn't even that much. There wasn't a lot of records. But a little 45s there and they put them back in. And I started. Playing, um, but what happened was this is where the DJing thing for me started. Was what happened was that when you owned, when you had um, jukebox in your place, right? You didn't own the jukebox, right? So the guys would put the jukebox in your bar, and then what you used to do was you used to take nail polish and you used to color the quarters red. That signified that you fed the machine yourself. So you would get those quarters back. 
So what ended up happening was that the jukebox wasn't making that much money. So the, the guy for the jukebox came, and I guess he told my father, we're going to have to take the jukebox out because it's not worth it for us to keep it there, you know, because... So we were constantly putting in red quarters just to keep music going on. Right. So then what happened, my father bought me a box, a little seven-inch record player, right? And we set it up in the corner, and I would just play records during the day. When he, you know, when people were coming in, you know. Okay, so the one after another, no mixing yet, just one, one. No, record. no, just forty-five and a spindle, stack up ten, hit play, and you know they'd come up and down. So that's when I started to get uh, into the actual um, DJing part of it. You know, at the same time, I'm still trying to be a rocker. The guy across the street was so the band we used to always go to the studio because he said that if there was ever spare time at the end of a session that they would record us oh really okay so we used to go to the studio i i I can't tell you how many times we went to the studio nothing ever happened (laughs) one day i think it was in 70s probably 75, 76, we went to this studio called Delta Sound. The engineer that night was none other than Bob Blank. Oh, wow. This was before Bob opened up Blank, Blank Tapes. Blank Tapes, right. Bob he, was Blank. Working at, he was working at Delta. That's the first time that I met him. And one and we got to record a track, you know. I don't know what we played, what it was. It was lost. But that's when I first met Bob Blank. And between 76 and 78, I started to play little clubs in the Bronx, little bars, you know, knock on the door, go downstairs, you know, playing some, you know, uh, R&B, a little bit of the early kind of disco, some salsa and stuff. And that's when I started to do the edits. When I started to play Date with the Rain, Date with the Rain was the inspiration that started my whole career. And how so? Eddie Kendricks. Because that record was two minutes and 32 seconds long. You know, and I loved the record so much that I wanted it to keep going longer. So what I ended up doing was I had a cassette deck in my house. Okay. And I learned how I figured any of this out. I don't know. I learned how to determine where the distance between the record head and the playback head. So I could determine when you hit record, where it would actually jump into the tape. So wait a minute, John. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that you just decided to figure this out. Never thought about you had musical training, beat, understanding beats per minute, any of that, that it just happened? The point. Well, no, I was just trying to figure out how I could try to make the record longer without, without the stop. So with, with Eddie Kendricks, what I did was I would play the record 
I would record it up to a certain part that I wanted. Then I would stop the cassette. I would take it out. I'd take a pencil and wind the tape back until I got, you know, to how many, I figured out, I, I think it was like two or three turns. I was on a Sony TCM 730 tape recorder. Never forget it. You know, it was a black, had little effects. So I go back, I turn it three turns, and this way I would play the record. And I hit the record, I knew how long it would take for it to get to that part. You know, it's almost like, you know how you would take a reel and you would scrub the oh, head? Oh, sure, you scrub it. Yeah, you get that doom, doom, right. doom, doom. Right, but like I said, you could scrub. There's no way to do that. There's no, no so you, I'd use the, you know, I figured out, if I stopped it here, I took a pencil and I played it and then I figured out with the counter and how many turns it would take to get that. And that's how I started doing the Sunshine Edits. Wow. Off a cassette. Off a cassette. With the hiss and all. With whatever came, whatever came with it. And there's something when you look, listen to that stuff back, you're like, wow. I know you do. I know you have those I tapes. I had the cassettes, and then I then I bought a, a Tascam thirty three forty, right, and a Sony, and I started to do the reel to reels, and that's when I started to do the deadly medleys and but all here's the other. The now, you're now by yourself, hanging out, working dad's bar, doing all that stuff, DJing here, there, and everywhere. Was there any go-tos at that time when you were figuring out this pause play thing with the cassette? Was anybody else doing this that maybe you heard a record or you somebody mentioned something? I didn't. Because what I did was I went into the yellow pages. I went into the yellow pages looking to where I can press a record. <laughs> That's what I want to know. What, yeah, where is that going to start? Right. So... So then I probably think it was 77, 76, 77, because I know 78, 78, 79 is when I started to do the studio stuff. So it was in, in that three-year period. I was doing the edits. I found Sunshine Sound, 1650 Broadway. The famous, famous building, that famous building. Yeah. Every so, record. So then what I ended up doing was I called down. Frank, I said, do you guys make you know, plates. I said, yeah, I forget how much they were, like 10. See, a lot of plates. Maybe you can get a couple plays out of it. You know, so I went down and got my first plate done, which was Date with the Rain. You know, and then I got, uh, there was another one that I did. I started the Deadly Medley with a couple songs, but at the time it wasn't finished, but I wanted to be able to play it on a record. You know, because at the time in the clubs and in the bars, there was no cassette decks, there was no reels, so you couldn't play the stuff out. <clears throat> so right around 78 was when it started to pick up, and then you started to get people there like Francois, Jay Negron, uh, Keith Thompson, Ray Pinky Velasquez. There was a that were discovering Sunshine Sound. You know, by virtue of the few plays that were out, it was the only place 
that people know to go. Can I ask you? Know, there was you also Dick Charles. There was a couple of other yeah. places where you could get, you know, people, Angel Sound. People started finding where these other manufacturers or these places were. When you went and did Day with the Ring, was that, did you say it was a mono press? Or yeah. was that, even, so they, wouldn't, they didn't even have they a were stereo. They all mono. They didn't have a stereo cutting ahead. No, no, not at Sunshine. Those were all, all mono. Wow. So they were on 10 inch. Right. So those were all mono cut plates. Right. Yeah, they were all mono. You know, so. But why? But why at that time would you go mono when there was stereo already happening? Was there anybody had stereo at that I, time? No, no, because I mean, you're talking late seventies. Only the big houses were doing stereo, and they're not going to let some kid walk in with a little cassette or a little tape to do one lacquer. They were doing so. You know, they were doing all the big labels. You know, the people that were using like Sunshine and Dick Charles and Angel Sound were the small independent labels that were cutting an acetate to hear it in the office. Right. As a reference. Right. <clears throat> right. It was not really serious because if you knew Sunshine Sound, it was a little room on the 10th floor at 1650. So that's how that that's how that all started. And that's where a lot of us guys met. And that's how we all started to Tuesdays to go visit all the record labels, you know, pick up all our promos. So we would meet at one place. We'd go to Columbia. We'd go to Fantasy. We'd go to Prelude. We'd go to Atlantic. You know, we'd sit in Izzy's office, you know, sitting there waiting, you know, begging for two copies or something. And that's how David I got Todd, David Todd, 1650, RCA. 1650 Broadway was also the building that housed Randy Muller with his brass construction and all that stuff. Patrick Adams, Greg Carmichael, Midsong International Records. There was a bunch of labels in that building. Went up to get some acetate done at Sunshine. And Frank told, you know, and Frank said, you know, you should get this guy, John Morales, to to mix the record for you. He's doing all these edits and stuff. So this is Greg Carmichael from Red Greg? Yeah. Red Greg Records, everybody. Red Greg Records. 1978. 1978. Mark yep. that down. Yeah, 42 years ago. <laughs> 40, and in Spanish, 42 42 years. 42 años. 42 years to our Spanish friends. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's like you, when you say it, they used to say when we were kids, you would say this when you're older. When you say the years, you're going to blink them out, right? And when we were you thought that was forever. But when you do the trek to when you get to the point when you're at the other side of the 50 years, you go, that ain't nothing. <laughs> I could do that. I stood that my standing on my head. Sunshine Sound. So he had a Neumann left mono mono cutting. I never made it to Sunshine when I came around. That they weren't around anymore. I wasn't. I knew about all that stuff that was that was going on. So you had you had all those guys in that building, sixteen fifty. So it's like one stop shopping for you. You go see all the labels, pick up promos, talk shop, and Great Carmichael introduces you. I mean, Frank introduced you to Great Carmichael, 
Now, what's that record that they're talking about an idea for you to work on? Well, what happens is was at the time because I became a little bit popular with the acetates. Frank asked me if I wanted to sell them there. He said, if you want, I'll sell the acetates. I'll give you a dollar off every one I sell. And I was like, all right, that's cool. So I just started doing edits for Frank to sell. One day after he spoke to Greg, I went in and he said, do me a favor, go down to the seventh floor to Red Greg Records and ask for Greg Carmichael. I, I think he may want you to mix a record. <clears throat> <clears throat> so I go downstairs to Greg, you know, and, you know, he said, you know, in his, you know, in his way, he says, oh, we, we're making a record on Saturday and NOLA recording. I want you to stand at 3.30 in the morning. And I'm like, 3.30 in the morning? Well, all of, all of us who came to know Greg knew that Greg didn't like to pay for anything, didn't have money. So he would take whenever the studios weren't available, weren't <laughs> up working. So he had like weird hours. You know, you'd go in this. I'm at 3.30 in the morning on Monday night, yep. Tuesday morning, come in 3.30, everyone. Yeah, NOLA recording. It was on 57th Street in the Carnegie Hall building. I think it was on the 12th floor. I show up at 3.30 in the morning and me and Jocelyn kind of have, we both agreed to disagree on how this all came out. You know, I walked in and Jocelyn was in the control room and she was singing Caught Up in a One Night Love Affair, finishing it. There was an engineer named Jock, uh, Jock's there. And Jocelyn came by and we're listening to the playback. And Jocelyn says to me, she says, now, John Morales, don't you use that part. There's that one part in the middle where Jocelyn yells out i'm caught up and she kind of cracks a little bit at the end yeah scratches. she didn't want me to use that in the yeah. right she didn't want me to use that in the record what'd you do <laughs> i used, it, in used it don't ever tell her because to do it worked for, use it. you hear me I, I never say that Just what i wanted it worked so then everybody left you know patrick left okay john you know do your thing give me a you know do the mix with so I sat there, kind of didn't know what I was doing, but I, I didn't know what I was doing. But I knew what ideas I wanted to implement, you know? But wait a minute. So hang on. You're walking in, you hear the song for the first time. She's tracking it. Right. Was Patrick there as well as the producer? Patrick had left. No. This is what happened. So tell us the, the room, everything. No. the um, Patrick had already cut the track. With Terry Gonzalez, right? Okay. So this is this is the backstory after this all happened. Greg called Patrick, said, "Do you have a track?" So Patrick said, "I got this song caught up. You could use that." So Greg borrowed the track from Patrick to use to record Jocelyn's voice on it. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. So I came in after Jocelyn had finished recording the vocal and was leaving. 
So the only thing I saw was just Jocelyn finishing her session and getting ready to leave. So, and then I just mixed it. Okay. I, I didn't know right. what was, I didn't realize that it, it ended up that Greg literally stole the track from Patrick and was shopping it around without Patrick even knowing. So. No, I didn't know that either. I, I, I didn't. Well, this is common knowledge. Yeah, it was, it was a big thing. You know, Sam wanted the record, um, Prelude, and then what ended up happening Patrick found it, it. It just got it just got crazy. So, but you know the record. Marvin Schlachter signed. Right, Marv Marv Schlachter signed the record. You know, and the album. Francois was Francois before I go, but Francois was working there at that time. Did Francois bring the record into Prelude? Do you know? No, Francois Kevorkian. No. no, what happened was that the record was getting on WBLS. Okay. It would it went on heavy rotation. Me and Jocelyn were in a car one day, gun session, and we put BLS on and the record came on. And and we were like so excited. It was her first track as a lead singer, my first remix or mix, you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, so we, we ever remix, you professional know, so we, remix. We were like really right. And you know, basically I was hanging out with Greg. We were driving out to New Jersey to buy the records and sell them out of his the trunk of his car. So we were going to like JR and downtown and downstairs, bringing boxes of records and then coming back to Jersey and buying some more, you know, because he could only get but so many done at a time. Right. And then Prelude somehow jumped in, went to buy the record from Greg. Then they found out that Greg really didn't own the record. Then <laughs> You know, so I don't know what the business aspect of it was, but if you know the characters involved, you, you know. Yeah. Was it, so that's that's where it all started. Was it, doesn't Greg Carmichael make reggae? Wasn't he a reggae? The label was more based on a reggae for you know reggae thing in the sense he had reggae no, artists as no, well. Well, Greg had well. Well, I mean, the the artist that Greg had was basically stuff he was involved heavily with patrick so it was most of the stuff was all patrick penned all the early universal robot band bumblebee unlimited you know love bug and and things like that dance and shake your tambourine i mean you know so greg <clears throat> the thing about greg carmichael was that greg knew talent he could he could get talent and put it together you know, and you figure that the full of people that we had back in 1979, 1980, you know, people like Leroy Burgess, Jocelyn, and all the music. Uh, Jocelyn came with Cindy Mizell and Janet Wright, and just a lot. Le uh, Luther was part of the background crew, you know. So he aligned himself with all those musicians that were just in it for the music, you know, right. you know, so a lot of us, you know, right. we never got paid and we've had this conversation before. Oh yeah, you I know. know. I know. My decision know that. That, yeah. Well, my decision in 1979, 1980 was, do I want to do this knowing that I'm not going to get make any money off of it? 
You know, am I going to use this for my education, my OJT? So what I decided to do was I decided that everywhere that Greg and Patrick went, I was going to be there. You know, whether they asked me to go or didn't, I was just going to show, I showed up at blank tapes, I showed wherever. So I became part of the crew. Okay. So I was there for the recording of all that stuff, like the whole log album. I sit right next to Leroy with Bob Blank at Studio A at Blank Tapes when we were recording all that stuff. Barely, the Bailey Break, Girl, Let's Do It, Sweet Thing, all those records I was a part of. All the inner life stuff. Every single one I was. You know, the only thing was that I never got the right credits for what I was doing. So let's give you credit so, now. What were you doing? So explain to the people what exactly what was going on. when you I mean, I was doing stuff that I didn't know how to do. One night, I'll give you an example. One night, it was just me and Jocelyn in the studio. And we produced and I recorded. I mean, by that time, I learned what the red light means. When the red light's on, it means you're recording. So I was learning. I mean, I learned everything I know about engineering, basically from Bob Blank and Butch Jones and Joe Alada, the three core engineers. That so everything I learned was watching them. So okay. there was a song on, um, I think it was In a Life One Calls You. That was basically produced by me and Jocelyn. I recorded, engineered it, you know. So, you know, um, I mean, even like a you no know, mountain and stuff like that. I was part of all those, all those records. I know you will. I mean, I, I was there, and I got like my credit was like special thanks or <laughs> hand claps or just some like weird stuff. You know, <laughs> because at that time, special class by John Morales. <laughs> yeah, well, we used to go in the stairwell because the reverb was so good <clears throat> so and that's i mean and that's during the deal which was in 1980 right 79 80 sergio got his first mix from salso no stopping that rocking and he invited me down to the studio you know because we met at bls you know, because I was doing the midday uh, the dance uh, shows for Frankie. So Frankie hired you to do the, I remember that, you were doing the afternoon slot, right? The 12 o'clock lunch mix around that time? Well, no, it was Friday, Friday night dance party. Okay, that I know. You it was did. a Friday night dance party. Right, that I did. Uh, those were the first ones. They didn't have the midday shows until after. You know, Sergio was assistant. So when Caught Up was happening, we went up there and met with him. And then I was a DJ and we got along. So Frankie said, well, why don't you bring up a tape? We're starting this new, you know, Friday night, you know, dance party. You know, it's two hours, you know, and they would use two different DJs. You know, a lot of, a lot of the nights it'd be like me and T. Scott or me and um, uh, Ted Curry or or some other people. So Ricky Murdo was there at the time. Uh, and of course, Frankie. And that's how me and Sergio got along. 
he wanted to know how the mixing went so i invited him down to the studio and um then Soul asked him to do a mix and he called me and he said i really don't know what to do and so i helped him out i set him up with blank tapes organized the time he went started the session i had a session the same day in another room <clears throat> came over to the studio uh uh, them out a bit. We started talking and we said, you know what? We get along. We like the same music. Let's just do uh, Eminem mix. And that's how it started. So from that record? And it started. Yeah. No Stopping That Rockin' was the first record. Of the Eminem connection begins. Right. Sergio Munzabai and John Morales come, right. come together. Right. And then we did get down Friday night for the but Sergio was really working on the Frank though. So let's be clear. So Sergio was working as an assistant to Frankie Crocker. Right. At WBLS. Frankie, at the, Sergio was already at BLS before I met him. So he was Frankie's assistant. Okay. Pro, yeah, programming assistant. So Sergio has some juice up there. Right. So he, I think he did big time. He definitely right. juice. He definitely I mean, it did. It did hurt us when we started doing the mixing, to be honest. So... You know, I mean, we used to get some work and I used to tell him all the time, I said, you know, I says, we're not only getting the work because we're talented, we're also getting the work because some of these people that because we're associated with the radio station that they're going to get some play on some of this stuff. Tell them it like okay, it for play is. almost in this. Kind of pay for play, baby. Play for pay, pay for play, play baby. Yeah. Pay for play without paying. They're gonna pay you to do the job. You're gonna do a great mix, right? And your stuff's gonna get possibly rotated on Frankie's playlist, maybe, or the masterpieces right. for that. Well, chance the chances are probably a hundred percent that that mix is gonna get played on my on our own dance parties. Sure. So we'll get some airplay. And the chances is that Frankie will get to make a decision on what it, you know, whether on full rotation or play it once or twice a day or something. So, yeah, it was a different era back then. So that's sure. how it started. Can I take? Can you take a second? 